0: Hey Three Crosses family, AJ Venegas here, director of life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses. Today we've made it to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And so with that, let's go deeper. Well, congratulations listeners. You've made it to chapter three of First Peter. Here to talk about verses one through seven, again, is Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: So let's dive in. Uh, we are going to read these uh, section of verses, sort of section by section, and break down what's going on. So uh, let's start here at verse one. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So I want to stop there because we come across another demographic that Peter is talking to. Uh, Last week, we talked about um, being a good citizen and being a servant or a slave in the Greco-Roman culture. And so here we come today with this tension of we have a conversation about women and wives in our modern 21st century lens, but it's almost a challenge that we wrestled with last week to step into the Greco-Roman context here. And so Pastor Danny, I'm wondering if you can help us take ourselves and put us into the shoes of the Greco-Roman context. And what is Peter trying to do in this conversation about wives?
1: Yeah. If you listen to the message on Sunday, what we walked through was kind of starting at the created order, this idea of marriage, a picture coming from the first few chapters of Genesis. And in those chapters, we see a picture of man and woman created distinctly and differently from one another, each bringing something different to the table, but becoming one flesh, submitting to one another, and having the fruit of that uh, be... Children, be the mission of God, be these different things that God has uh, ordained that men and women together in marriage should do as they walk and live together on planet earth. And what we said on Sunday is that what happens in Genesis 3 is sin enters into the world and starts to break marriages. And one of the problems that happens is that as you follow the story through the narrative of scripture, we see that the sin nature, the curse of mankind becomes more codified in the culture of God's people and of the world than the true design for marriage. And so in the Greco Roman culture, for example, we see this idea that sometimes people today will refer to as the patriarchy with a a pejorative sense that it's not just a a society where men are the head of the households, for example, or women traditionally stay home, like a traditional values culture, but it's a, a society where men have all the power. Right, where women have no voice they're seen as intelligent beings but intelligent beings who need to learn from their husband for example we see in that culture that it's a culture where women are dissuaded from leaving the home without being accompanied by their husband we see that women are not allowed to learn unless it comes through their husband we see in that culture that women are subjected to their husband in all things and we even get some hints in this passage that there are things in that culture that experience that is experienced still unfortunately today things like domestic violence that is primarily perpetrated and perpetuated by the men in society. And so Peter is writing to a culture where men have all of the power and women find themselves powerless in the same way as we talked last week about servants and masters, slaves and masters. uh, Women have slightly more, not power than slaves in that culture, but slightly more of a voice or a, a personhood in the home, but not much. And so Peter is directing his Uh, scripture here, his writing here, his letter here, um, even primarily to women who find themselves very often in an oppressive system, and many of whom, as he addresses, are even married to folks who are not believers. And so there's not even a hint of men in their lives who are able to love them the way that they've been ordained to love women in the scriptures.
0: So you'll find in the Greco-Roman culture, in these, um, you know, commentaries on the, the culture here, the, the woman's job in the marriage was to essentially fit into the social given order. They couldn't have friends of their own, worship the gods of the husband. And so you're right, Pastor Danny, the, the man had all the power. And so I want to rewind because we've been talking about um, this key passage in chapter two, verses 11 to 12, which talks about abstaining from the passions of the flesh, uh, the flesh, and the call to live such good lives to the point that people begin to accuse us of doing wrong. And we unpacked what it looks like to live a life that kind of aligns with the Greco-Roman definition of good, but then standing firm for what is uh, godly and what is uh, prescribed by scripture. And so I'm wondering, what does it mean when it says that in the way that people act, they may be won over without words. So essentially, if a wife behaves in a certain way, they may be won over. It seems like there's an evangelistic flair that um, might be sort of hard to connect in our minds. What does it say that submission is a key to evangelism?
1: Yeah, what Peter is saying to these wives in this context, on one hand, is good news he's telling them to live good lives. And really the the good lives he's calling them to live is a life in accordance with the gospel where they are, like he says to the husbands later, co-heirs with their spouse in the gracious gift of life, not in this subservient type of relationship. And so he brings dignity and honor to the women in that relationship. But at the same time, he dignifies the fact that they're living in a culture where they are powerless. And yet Peter says, here's some more good news. You're not as powerless as you think, even in this culture. Because you, he says, you who have unbelieving husbands, they, these husbands might be won over without words when they see your behavior. So wives, if you're in a context where you don't have a voice in your home, it says you don't need a voice to change the religion of your husband, right? You don't, your behavior, your good works, whatever you're able to do in your cultural context that might be uh, marginalizing, is actually powerful, something that God can use to change the religion of your husband, which in and of itself is another subversive act in that culture, changing the religion of the household. And so Peter gives them a glimpse that even when they find themselves in a place, maybe in a household with a a man who's not a Christian person, who gives her no voice, no power, no mobility, and everything she does, she goes to church, she has to sneak out, and it's against the wishes of her husband, for example. Even in that case where she has no ability to be mobile or speak, Peter says, you can live in such a way that the spirit can use you to transform your husband. And part of the hope that comes from that is, A, the hope of a, a man coming to Christ. But even for the woman, if your husband comes to faith, your life most likely will change if your husband is listening to the teachings of the apostles as well. And so there's some hope that comes in the powerful way the spirit can work, even through our submissive behavior.
0: And so Peter continues in verse three to talk about, you know, one of the ways that uh, he feels like he- Women and wives are called to live in the Christian culture. And he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so I want to take the skeptic angle to this because, uh, you know, in our culture today, feminism is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And I can imagine people reading this passage and seeing oppression rather than, you know, living in a way that is good for evangelism or good to the glory of God. They're saying, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. That feels like you're suppressing women in their style, their individuality. And so I'm wondering, what would you say to the skeptic that looks at this passage and sees the oppression that, you know, historically may have happened in the Christian church itself?
1: I think you have to look at this passage and first make a decision based on study, which is, is Peter coming alongside an oppressive system in his day? Or is Peter trying to subvert in some way the oppressive system of his day? Because if Peter is is really just trying to maintain the patriarchy, for example, then everything he's saying sounds very domineering, right? You don't need to not submit. Keep submitting. God can use that, right? Don't become beautiful. Just be a good person, right? Stay in the state that you're in. And so if that is what Peter's saying, which I don't believe he is, and we've talked about that a lot this week and last week, then yeah, then it seems like what he's doing is trying to keep women down. But if the study that we've done is true, and Peter is trying to dignify and give ability and power to women in a helpless situation, then we have to read even a a passage like that through that lens as well. And and I think it wouldn't be that hard if we give Peter the grace uh, to believe that he is dignifying women to say that what he's saying is just coming alongside the advice of every mother that I've ever met that's given advice to her daughter, which is really just a summary statement of, hey, just remember what's inside is more beautiful than what's outside, right? And that really, that's all that Peter's saying is, just a a statement that we've all said to ourselves, we've all said to others, we've all said to our children, male and female, right? Be a beautiful person on the inside, not merely on the outside. So it's very easy to read Peter's words and see that that's what he's trying to say is, um, he doesn't say, don't braid your hair. He doesn't say, well, don't wear jewelry. He says, your beauty should not come from these things, but instead the source of your beauty should be the unfading inner beauty, which is a statement that even in our very progressive culture today, everyone believes is that our beauty should be on the inside. I think one piece that that we can add to that is that one of the things that Peter is trying to do throughout the entirety of this book is help people not get drawn into the cultural values, right? Whether it's cultural values for household order or this idea of the world coming in and trying to form our opinion of what life should be about. And so part of what he's doing too is he's speaking with these women is telling them, don't look longingly at the system of this world, which talks about fame and money and beauty on the outside and all these different things, right? Today, that would be things like social media and looking at uh, the image of your friends and famous people and saying, that's what I want to be like. Peter gives the same advice. Don't be drawn into the culture because remember the culture is what's keeping you down. Instead, submit yourself to the Lord and he will give you power in your place to have a beautiful inner spirit that can transform you and transform your household from the inside out.
0: I think it's fascinating that he lands on the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which reminds me of the Beatitudes there of just being meek or, you know, Jesus is teaching saying he is gentle and humble in heart. And so it's like that inner beauty that's coming out. And um, one way Peter illuminates this is by pointing to an example, which takes us into our next session's section, starting in verse five. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now on surface level, Abraham and Sarah, they're two very prominent figures. So it makes sense to point to, okay, This is like the mother of all of Israel. It started with Abraham. It continued through the line uh, of Abraham and Sarah. But what's interesting, if you dig a little deeper, it's fascinating because you see that Abraham dictated some certain things to Sarah and her obedience actually bolstered up a lie when it came to Egypt saying, I am your sister. And she went along with it. So that submission was almost like, why did she go along with this? Yet at the same time, Sarah, often goes to Abraham and tells him to do stuff. And that ends up in some bad places. Uh, I think of the incident with Hagar saying like, go into your maidservant and have a kid with Hagar and Abraham obeys. So I'm wondering why the allusion to Sarah here? Um, What is significant about Peter pointing us to Sarah when we know that there's some tense passages back all the way back in Genesis?
1: Yeah, the commentaries that we read that, you know, we talk about Karen Jobs, We talk about Edmund Clowney, who are the two commentaries we're primarily leaning on. Uh, one of them drew out the fact that after uh, Peter gives them a, a advice to not turn their eyes towards culture for role models and beauty and right, the Kardashians of that day or whatever, who are these people who are famous and glittery and ritzy and all that. Um, now he gives them an alternate role model, right? The the commentator called uh, Sarah the first lady of the Jewish religion. This idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the were the fathers of Judaism, Sarah was the wife of Abraham, right? And so he says, if you're looking for a role model, let's look to this role model of Sarah. And like you said, AJ, uh, when we look at Sarah's life, we get a little bit confused, right? Because um, first of all, we get a little confused 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 in this first Peter word where he says Sarah calls Abraham her master or Lord, the Greek word is uh, kurios there, um, which really, most commentators would say is a sign of respect, almost like calling her husband, sir, um, which is a sign of respect, right? And then we look at this story in the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah, and we see they have a very interesting relationship. Sarah was an outspoken woman. We think of the the story where God shows up at Abraham's tent and talks about the destruction of some cities that he's going after, uh, and then gives this promise to Abraham that he was going to have a child in his old age, and that Sarah, who was decades post-menopausal, would have a child in her old age, and Sarah laughs, and God says, did she laugh? And she says, I did not laugh, right? And God says, (laughs) Yes, you did laugh, right? Um, And so we see this. Sarah is not uh, a submissive person as we might caricature someone to be. This is a person who has a voice of her own, who has opinions of her own, who's wrestling with the Lord and watching God provide children, who struggles. You mentioned the Hagar story of Sarah struggling with fertility issues. And then it has this jealousy thing going on with Hagar. And there's all of this stuff going on there. Abraham has problems of his own, right? Where he gets scared, convinces Sarah to say that she's his sister, not his wife. All this crazy stuff happens, and yet it seems like Peter is saying, listen, like you can look at some of these crazy stories of the Old Testament and see that we have a woman who's a real human being, Sarah and Abraham, We're real human beings. And they walked through life, and Sarah adopted this posture where, even sometimes when her husband was being an idiot, like Abraham was with these lies in these foreign countries in Egypt, uh, Sarah said, Okay, whatever you say, right? And so there's this idea where Abraham does that for better or for worse to Sarah, too. There's this mutual submission in their relationship. And yet, as Peter's talking to these women, he says, Listen, don't look at the Instagram stars of your day. To be the model for how you should live and what beauty looks like. Let's look to the scriptures. Let's look at the first woman of the first lady of the Jewish faith, Sarah. Familiarize yourself with that story and realize she had a voice. She wrestled with stuff. Her husband is not always right. She was not always right. But she and Abraham both, but she had a posture of submission. And for better or for worse, she was respectful to her husband, even when he had crazy ideas sometimes, and God honored all of it. And they became this most famous couple in the history of the Jewish world. And so look at her, right? Find her as a role model. So we don't get a lot of specifics into that, but that's the guess as we kind of do our own research into the Old Testament and see the crazy life of the patriarchs.
0: I think it's a good principle to always look for role models in your life to sort of model your life after. And I know from the very beginning where, you know, God creates uh, man in the image of God, male and female, he created them all the way from the beginning of scripture. It's loaded with strong women characters. And so I'm wondering if you could uh, just take us through briefly just some characters in the Bible that maybe we can learn from and uh, that are great role models for us just like sarah the first lady of the abrahamic faith
1: It's interesting when you ask for for female role models in the old testament a ton of women come to mind and the women who come to mind first for me interestingly enough like the sarah story are women that god extols time and time again who were not perfect saints, right? We we could say the same thing as we walk through a hall of fame of men in the Old Testament, right? But I think of a Rahab who is described, I believe in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, um, as this woman that God used in the salvation history of his people through her lying, right? There was this, this group was coming in wanting to kill the Israelites and she lied, sent them on their way. Uh, She hid folks in her apartment and saved their lives. And so this is a woman who used her voice, put herself out there and even put put herself out there to a place where if they found out she would have been killed instantly. And in a, in a way that many of us would say, Hey, maybe that's questionable to make up this story. Right. And yet she trusts the Lord acts the way that she feels like is most honorable and God honors that and brings salvation through her. I think of of other women we think of, uh, A famous woman in the Old Testament who's part of the line of David, right? Bathsheba, who is someone who is known as you read the story as a victim of abuse, right? She was the woman who lived next door to David when he was in power and he brought her to his house and he had his way with her. She became pregnant. He killed her husband, right? She was a a victim in that world. And yet God used her to bring forth the Messiah. She gave birth to Solomon. Solomon was a forefather of Jesus. And she shows up in these lineages of the Messiah. So we see some women who experienced some very difficult things and who made some difficult choices like Rahab. And we also see women, I think of a Ruth who uh, really demonstrates this picture of the first Peter submission, not in her necessary submission at first to a husband, but the way that she submitted to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi. Ruth was the the woman who was from Moab. She was not a Jewish person. And yet when there was so much death in her family and her mother-in-law said, go back to the Moabites and find a husband. She said, no, I'm going to stay with you. She had a submissive spirit to this woman she was no longer bound to, and then continued that submissive spirit into the threshing floor, into, uh, gleaning grain into trying to provide for her family as a single woman, and yet God used that to bring her into relationship with Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, and through that union, God brings not only a type of Jesus, but brings the Messiah through that union as well. And so it's interesting as we look at the women who are part of the lineage of Jesus, we see a lot of real human beings who suffered abuse, who suffered neglect, who suffered trauma, who had to make tough choices, who used their voice, who had to submit even when they were powerless and voiceless, who were in poverty, and God used all of those really hard situations to bring forth something beautiful in their lives, and even more beautiful hundreds of years later when the Messiah walked the earth. And so even as Peter addresses the women of his day who find themselves likewise in a place where they are marginalized, where some of them are at the hands of husbands uh, that they do not want to be in relationships with because they're unequally yoked in a spiritual sense. Uh, Peter says, you like these holy women of the past can make yourself beautiful with your inward actions. And like Paul says in first Corinthians seven, who knows wives, if you will save your husbands, there can be transforming power in the work God has you to do. And God brings deliverance when we submit ourselves to him.
0: You know, each of these conversations is just opening my eyes to this upside down nature of the kingdom of God, and just how it just gives power to the powerless, and it's it's just so fascinating to see how these words of First Peter subvert the culture, and uh, how, like you said last week, they kind of get abused at sometimes, and so it's just incredible. And so I want to move on to this last section to close us off here. Uh, it's in verse seven. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And so if you're reading that, you might be you know, uh, uncomfortable about this language with like the weaker partner. But again, some of the commentaries we were reading just say like, hey, just physically, it's just, there's a difference. And then right after that, it says like, your co-heirs with your husband. And so again, subverting the culture. But I was really struck with this last final phrase, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And so I'm wondering if there's a connection between this conversation about living good lives and our effectiveness in prayers or in ministry? Is there a connection? It kind of seems like that's teetering on the line of like a workspace faith of like, you're not going to receive a, a platform with God if uh, you're not performing the right deeds in this life. Or it, it, what's going on here with this last closing line towards husbands so that nothing will hinder your prayers?
1: I think it is important for us to know that there are things that can hinder our prayers. I think in the book of James, where James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And this comes a few chapters after James also says that when you ask God for things, you should ask with faith and not doubt. And he says the man who doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. We see that there is sin in our lives that can affect the efficacy of our prayers. Uh, We can see I mean, there's a lot of things, right? Where we're not in the will of God. We are wandering from him. We're asking for the wrong things. We want to spend the answers on our own motives. There are all these reasons in the scriptures that God says, listen, I'm not going to answer your prayers if you're living this way, right? I even think of an Isaiah where... In Isaiah, God says through the prophet, I, I'm not listening to your prayers. I'm not watching your festivals. I'm not receiving your worship because you are not loosening the bonds of slavery. You're not changing the world. You're not bringing justice into the community. And so we get a hint probably of that one, maybe some other things in this passage here where Peter, for the first time, addresses a power-having person in the relationship, we said last week it's it's pretty interesting and very unique in the ancient literature that an author like Peter would address the marginalized party Peter is the only author and Paul the biblical authors are the only authors in the ancient Near East who addressed wives and slaves and subjects most of the authors of that day would only address the people in power so Peter Doesn't address government agents, doesn't address masters. Now for the first time he addresses someone with power, he addresses the husbands. And when he addresses the husbands, he tells them a couple things. He says, first, don't use your power to take advantage of your wife right? Your wife is weaker than you. Like you mentioned, physically, your wife is weaker than you socially, we've been talking about. Don't use your power to perpetuate the system. Instead, recognize your wife is a co-heir with you in the gracious gift of life. And there's a bit, I would guess, of a subtext that he's giving to these husbands to say, if you want God to answer your prayers, make sure you are acting in a righteous way in your home in regards to your relationship with your wife. You might guess as well that maybe husbands had unbelieving wives in the same way that wives had unbelieving husbands. And maybe he's telling husbands, hey, there's a power um, in your good behavior towards your wife in the same way there's a spiritual power of wives submissive behavior towards their husband in that day. And furthermore, I think that one thing Peter might be saying is that to these husbands, their behavior can actually change the system of this world, right? Wives we've talked about are just stuck within it. But husbands, as he talks to his husband, uh, to these husbands, he's giving them feedback that actually, if they lived this way, they would start to change the way that marriage worked in their culture. And so who knows what these husbands are praying for. And yet Peter gives them a, a bit of a you know, kind of sideways challenge to live honorable lives, to treat their wives differently than the culture treats wives, and to live in light with the, line with the gospel. Because if they do that and treat their wives not as objects, not as less than, but treat their wives as co-heirs with them for the gift of life, the prayers that they have, whichever these prayers are, will be answered by God and their lives, their wives, and their culture can even change as a result.
0: It's a beautiful harmony between that golden rule, right? Loving God and loving others, the total summation of the law. I think it goes back to that one key passage in First Peter 2 uh, verses 11 to 12 of how we can begin to transform the world by the way we live good lives. And so Pastor Danny, thank you for reminding us of that truth. And uh, may we continue to live for the glory of God.